If you don't know me, I'm Dylan. I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and uh, I am going to be continuing our series that we've been calling Simple Gospel on the Book of Romans. Uh, before we do, though, um, when I was a young boy, I uh, used to, after school, go to my family's flower shop. Uh, my family owns a flower shop in P- central Pennsylvania, and to this day, I love flowers. Uh, I know you all think I'm incredibly manly because of that, but I'm being vulnerable here for a moment. And I would go into the flower shop after school, and you can easily be overwhelmed by the amount of colors and the fragrance just hitting you in the face. It's just almost overpowering. And I think the Bible, like that, and the book of Romans, sometimes when you walk into it, there is so much going on. There are so many colors and smells. It is sensory overload. And that is why the messages that Pastor Paul and I preach are to give you a framework to seek God, but it is your job to stop and smell the roses because you can lose the tree in the middle of the forest if you fail to stop and meditate. And if new research holds true, during COVID, Christians are reading the Bible less than ever. And God's not angry with you. This is not a spiritual spanking. This is me here to say, now is the time to seek the Lord. And you do that by meditating on your own, on God's Word. If you can put it as part of your car ride, do whatever you do. But don't fail to stop and smell the roses because you're lost in the flower shop. Okay? I, uh, I wasn't raised in the church And I didn't become a Christian until I was about 18 years old. Uh, My parents did, however, bring me to church until I was about six years old. And I confess I really wasn't a very good church boy. Uh, When the children's ministry wanted to show me a picture of Jesus, I was far more fascinated with the Roman soldier all dressed up in armor. And he's who I wanted to be, not the guy who's hanging on the cross half naked. Also, when they would show us pictures of Daniel in the lion's den or Ezekiel I was much more fascinated with the gleaming spears and shields of the Babylonians than I was about a weak prophet. I feel like I never valued the right things, and I didn't believe the right things, and I felt out of sync with the church. In particular, I asked my parents a question one day about heaven, and I don't really remember much about the conversation, but I do remember one thing that has haunted me since I was a boy. They said, you have to be sure you're going to heaven. And I couldn't explain why, but that unnerved me because I was anything but sure. I was anxious and filled with doubt and would think to myself, there is something wrong with me. Yet I was too terrified to admit it, and I thought it must be a sign that God had rejected me. It must mean that I'm evil and not going to heaven. I always had this foreboding sense that God was somehow displeased with me and that my doubt was a sign that he hated me. I viewed the bad things that happened to me as a sign of God's displeasure and thus Christianity felt cold and foreign and I never understood how to reconcile my doubt and in the future my suffering with a God who had supposedly loved me. I thought you had to have great faith when in reality today's scripture shows us it is your little faith in a great God and Father. Over the course of the past few weeks, we've been preaching from this book called Romans, and we've talked about what it says about coming to Christ, becoming a Christian, walking in faith, dealing with your sin, and growing and maturing as a person. And today we come to the underlying bedrock it gives to teach you how to suffer. If sin is the battle within you, then suffering is often the battle outside of you. 
Today we're going to be in Romans 8, verses 14 to 25, and it's a dense portion of the Bible, but I believe with God's help I can communicate these truths with brevity and clarity. So let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, I pray that your name would be honored as holy today, Lord. I pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done here in our lives the same way it is in heaven. I pray you'd give us everything that we need for today, Lord. And I pray that you would forgive us for our many sins as we forgive those who've sinned against us. And by all means necessary, I pray that you would protect every single person in this room from the touch of the evil one, the devil, that you would do your work in preserving us by faith. And we ask it in the matchless name, the powerful name of your son, Christ. Amen. Amen. Last week, Pastor Paul laid out the Apostle Paul's teachings Uh, on how to defeat sin, and the theological term for that being sanctification. If you missed that message, you can listen to it again by searching Lowell Assembly of God on our Apple, uh, on Apple Podcast or on Spotify, and you can find all of our messages updated there on a weekly basis. He ended with verse 14 that says this, those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And that statement is strange, because Paul is basically saying, when you're a child of God, he leads you out of sin. It's interesting that Paul bridges this idea of how we deal with our sin and how to deal with our suffering with this concept of being a son. I want you to picture Romans chapter 8 like an archway. An archway, if you've ever seen it, is held together in the middle by something called a keystone, without which the entire thing collapses in on itself and falls apart. There's something holding all of our sin and all of our suffering together in the middle of this chapter, and it's called adoption. It's the concept that the Apostle Paul says holds it all together. It's the thread that weaves through the fabric of your life to create a tapestry instead of a mess and it's called adoption. Romans 8 may very well be the most beautiful chapter in the Bible in some's opinion, but the reason it is beautiful is because of verses 14 to 25. They help us explain why, and they tell us why it is true. They're the glue that holds the first half of this book together with the latter half. So today we're going to read that together. You can listen to me as I read it. You can follow along on your own Bible or on your phone, whatever you prefer. But again, we are in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse verse 15, going to verse 25. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we might also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation itself waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly 
as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. May God bless his word. If you couldn't tell by looking at me, I'm about 120 pounds soaking wet. And I'm like a little compact Italian car. There's a lot of beauty and grace in here. However, my adoptive father, Brad, and my real dad, Ed, are the polar opposites. One is a 260-pound biker. The other one is a 200-pound farmer. And I could not reasonably have come from either of their loins, but here I am. And when I was a kid, I loved Greek and Roman history. So the movie Troy came out with Brad Pitt. I believe it was like 2006 or something. And they took me to see it together. It was weird. They kind of got along really well together. They were like buddies. And I think they did that because they loved me and never wanted me to have to decide between them. So they took me to the movies together. And there was this guy at the movies who was shouting behind me and kind of scaring me the whole time. And I was pretty young at this time. So uh, my real dad, Ed, he gets up and he's like, hey, can you, can you quiet down? You're scaring my son. And the guy cusses at him. So my dad gets up and he's like, all right, it's game time. And, you know, he rolls up his sleeves and, uh, and Brad, he calms it all down. My adoptive dad's like, all right, let's, let's calm down, let's calm down. And it all went back to normal. And then the fateful scene comes where Brad Pitt jumps up in the air and kills the giant Boagrius. And the army goes wild and so does the guy behind me. And Brad turns around and goes, can you please be quiet? And the guy just hauls off and hits him. And Brad, calm as a cucumber, gets up, picks him up by his neck, and tombstones him on the ground. And, well, I'm glad somebody likes that. Anyway, uh, so, you know, the theater staff witnessed the whole thing. They saw it was self-defense, so they come up to my family and they say, are you okay? And Brad goes, you know, I am, but you, you really might want to check on that other guy. And at that moment, I felt vindicated, I felt protected, and I knew I had two tough dads in my corner who were willing to do whatever it takes to protect me. And in like manner, Paul hearkens to this, verse 15, he says, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom you cry, Abba, Father. Basically what he's saying is that you can have the utmost confidence that God not only calls you son, but there's nothing that you need to be afraid of anymore. You are defended and protected. You don't have to be afraid of God or afraid of circumstances. God is with you and you don't have to shrink back in fear. You can have the utmost confidence. There is hope in your suffering because you're in God's family. And it's important to note the reason this doesn't say children, but says son, is because the Roman system of adoption gives everything to the sons. And Paul is saying that even if you're a woman in this time, you get the inheritance of a son. Adoption rights may go to the son, but Paul is saying women are adopted as if they were sons, along with men, treated with all the rights of a son. And this is unheard of in his time. To count women as equal inheritors with men. Don't be mistaken, culture will tell you that we are a misogynistic movement. Christianity began feminism when the rest of the world mocked them for it. Biblical feminism says that we are equal inheritors with God. That 
is why it's important to study the Scriptures and be aware of versions that remove gender from the Bible, because in an effort to make things culturally sensitive and politically correct, they actually do violence to the meaning. Elsewhere, Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, there is no longer male and female, all are one in Christ, not meaning that God eliminates gender or subscribes to the modern view that there is a continuum of gender or multitudes of gender. Instead, Paul means that when you are adopted, you receive an inheritance from God as if you were a son, regardless of your physical gender. Don't insert your modern Western thinking into the Eastern mind of the Bible. You must respect its context and culture if you are to understand its content. And people try to twist the Scriptures today for their own political ends and position themselves as wise instructors, as understanding and progressive. But the Apostle Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 3, there are some things in our brother Paul's letters that are hard to understand, and the ignorant and unstable twist them to their own destruction. Be very careful to the wise teachers that you are listening to because they can pretend to be wiser than God. And he also says to show honor to women as those with weaker bodies, because they are heirs along with you of grace. You are all adopted with the rights of a son. And when the Bible is gender-specific, we must do this studying to find out why that is and what it means. And listen, men aren't off the hook here. I don't think there's a man in here who is comfortable being called the bride of Christ, okay? But that doesn't mean I get to check out of doing the hard work to find out why the Bible says that the way it is, because the Bible doesn't speak on accident, and it is not within our rights to redefine it and say, well, this must mean the spouse of Christ. And Peter says some twist Paul's writings as they do the other scriptures to defend their own ends. And today they warp the scriptures to make their point instead of God. They're still doing it today, but don't let it distract you from the real beauty that is in the scriptures. Paul is saying that now, because of your adoption, you can be confident and not fall back into sin. You don't have to be like Adam and Eve who shrink back from God in fear because they're afraid of what he's going to do to them for sinning. God is not simply your master anymore. He is your father, meaning he loves you, he thinks highly of you, he encourages you, and he is for you. One Bible commentator points out that the cry, Abba, is sometimes translated as daddy, and that's not accurate and also kind of weird. He says it translates more as dada. It's like a barely verbal cry, like an infant, not like a toddler, something that's more of a groan than it is a word. And this is the picture of your new intimate relationship with God through the blood of Christ Jesus. Paul is saying that you overcome your sin because you don't have to run from God and hide anymore, and you can be confident in your suffering and cry to Him like a baby in need of help. There is hope for you in your suffering because you belong to God's family. And because the spirit of adoption is in you, you can defeat sin and overcome suffering. History was always my favorite subject in school, which accounted for the fact that I had no girlfriends. And um, 
I've always been a history buff. And while other kids were watching Looney Tunes, my adoptive dad and I would watch History Channel specials on the French Revolution or modern marvels, or my favorite ones were the ones on the barbarian invasions in the Roman Empire. And I don't know if any of you remember that, that guy with the ancient alien hair, like the huge hair. Could it be aliens? I hate that guy. And I know I'm supposed to love everyone, but some people Jesus can do the loving with. My fascination with the Roman Empire has extended into my adulthood, and in particular, the study of the Roman emperors. Interestingly enough, many of the famous Roman emperors of the period called the Pax Romana, or the period of Roman peace, were all adopted. Now, there were some bad ones who were adopted, like Nero and Caligula and others, but the ones who were successful, who gained power through adoptions, are names that you would recognize. Augustus Caesar, Tiberius, Hadrian, Trajan, and Marcus Aurelius, because adoption was a huge deal in Roman culture. Verses 16 and 17 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children heirs, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. Notice he switches to children now. Now that you understand you receive the inheritance as a son, he doesn't want you to think that women are excluded, so he makes the point. You get the rights of a son regardless of your gender. He says children now. I don't remember much about my brief time in church as a child, but I do remember a children's worker talking about this verse, the Spirit bears witness, and says that it means deep down inside, you just know you're God's child. Also, my parents' idea of knowing that you're going to heaven would come to mind when I would read this verse. And like Thomas the Apostle, I just was filled with disbelief. I mean, there was no way. I just didn't feel it deep down inside. I, I didn't feel much of anything deep down inside. But that's not what this verse is saying. In Roman culture, at any adoption ceremony, a father would ceremoniously purchase the son, and seven witnesses were required to stand by to watch it. And the reason that these witnesses would stand as representatives is because if there was ever a dispute, they would come into Roman court to verify that the son could receive his inheritance. They bore witness and it's interesting to note that, the, that Paul says the Spirit stands as our witness because in, in the book of Revelation, the Spirit is referred to as the seven spirits of God. That means if anyone calls into question ever, if you truly belong to God, God's own Spirit steps in and says, no, I witnessed it, this person belongs to me. The Spirit is the seven complete witnesses necessary for a full legal adoption. And notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say the Spirit bears witness to your spirit. You're not going to feel good about this a whole lot of time, and it's not the Holy Spirit's job to give you a tingling and make you feel real nice. It says the Holy Spirit bears witness with your spirit, meaning He'll stand alongside of you. If you're in a court, He will be your advocate and defender. But it does not mean all the time you feel great about that fact. You see, my whole life I thought I had to be really certain deep down in my heart. But God is saying that if you even dare hope that God is your Father, He will back it up. And when the devil, the accuser, comes to slander you and call into question your heritage or your background or remind you of your past and your sins, it doesn't matter anymore. Because when a Roman son underwent adoption, he surrendered all the rights of his former family, including their debts, 
and now he inherits the debts and rights of his new family, as Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, even though you were dead, God made you alive with Christ and canceled the record of debt that stood against you. Your past no longer has any hold on you because you're adopted into God's family. You are new, and that means you have all the rights of a son. You are a fellow heir with Jesus of the coming world, and because the spirit of adoption dwells in you, God loves you the same way he loves his son Jesus. And that sounds really great until life decides to hit you in the face with a baseball bat and you end up on your back. If God loves me, then why do bad things happen to me? If God loved me, why, would he have, why wouldn't he have stopped this from happening? If God loved me, I wouldn't be dealing with this. Adoption seems to be contrary to suffering, when in reality they are closely linked. You see, it's not that Christians suffer more or less than anybody else. You will suffer regardless. Sin brought destruction and suffering into this world. Verses 18 to 25 say that. Sin corrupted nature itself. Natural disasters, cancerous tumors, on and on, financial disaster. The whole world is dying and Christians are not exempt from this. Recently, my mom told me she's got 10 masses on her lungs and we're not sure whether it's autoimmune or cancerous and we're we're going to be going through biopsies and getting all that tested, and I encourage you to pray with us. I'm praying for your husband, Katya. But the question could easily come to my mind. If God loved me, why is my mother suffering? If I've devoted myself to the service of God, then why does it seem my family is taking flack? It would be easy, and it's because this world and these bodies are dying. Sin leads to death, and every single one of us will physically die. But in verse 17, the Bible says that we are heirs of a new world and a new life with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that you better suffer or you're not really a Christian. In fact, it's more accurately translated. We are fellow heirs with Christ given the fact that we will suffer alongside him so that we're glorified with him. Suffering is coming for each of you. But the Bible does something interesting here. Some religions say suffering is an illusion, like the Christian science cult down the road or the one in Andover. Other, other religions will tell you sin is your due recompense. It is your punishment, but it, that is no longer your inheritance as a child of God. You are not under some karmic spell. Amen. But Paul doesn't do either of those things. Notice he says something peculiar in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy of comparison to the glory that's to be revealed to us. I prefer how the Phillips translation renders this. In my estimation, whatever we may have to go through now is less than nothing when compared with the magnificent future God has prepared for us. Your suffering is real, and Paul acknowledges it, but it isn't forever, and it's not the end of the road for you. In fact, Paul says it's not even going to be worthy of remembrance when compared to what is coming. 
Have you ever had a time in your life that you felt like you would never get out of? Many of you are in one right now. And perhaps you've forgotten how the Lord has always pulled you through and always has been faithful. Better things are ahead in Jesus. Hope will spill over the edge of your cup. And he's weaving your life into a grand tapestry if you will but wait and hope. And some of you may consider that wishful thinking and optimistic nonsense. But I hope for your sake that some of you are mature enough to hope again. Because hope is not a mark of naivety, but of a matured and experienced faith. Two weeks ago, I told the story of how at 16 years old, my life was so dark, I wanted to bring closure to it. And I came close. But I had no idea of what waited around the corner for me. I look back on that terrible time, not with regret or shame or confusion, but with thankfulness. It's that low feeling, that desperate feeling, and that dark season that persisted for two years that drove me to seek the Lord. And I can remember that after I was done with college classes and work, I would drive to the only church I knew and would drive around it hoping that it was open. I thought, maybe if God existed, He would hear my prayers there, not knowing that He heard them all along. I was trying to find answers so desperately that at my college I consumed the teaching of biblical scholars and I would try to listen to atheists alike. It didn't matter. I was just trying to make sense of my upside-down life. And you know, it's funny. I think the reason that God doesn't give us an answer to our suffering is because no answer would really suffice and we'd reject it. Only meeting him in person makes up the difference. And that's why Paul speaks of the answer to suffering in familial, intimate, adoptive, father-son terms. He's not giving you a cliche proverb. He's giving you himself. As one Christian author put it, I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer. You yourself are the answer. Before your face questions die away, what other answer would suffice? Coming to Christ doesn't eliminate your questions, but it does begin to kill your inner cynic. At 18, I could never imagine how good my life would be today. Uh, Troubles, trepidations about the future, heartache, sicknesses, all of it together accounted for. My life with Jesus is infinitely better than my life without him ever could have been. If I gained the whole world and forfeited my soul, what would it have been worth? No comfort is worth it apart from God's presence. Paul chooses an interesting metaphor for our suffering in verse 22. He says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And what's different now? What is happening now? Our adoption is beginning. We're beginning to see the tapestry and the art that God is creating out of the wreckage. Our adoption is guaranteed but we still look forward to its completion because we're still suffering. In our natural state, we look at our suffering and groan, and we think nothing can make up for the pain we're experiencing, but Paul compares it to childbirth. It's pain with purpose. Childbearing pain yields something in the end, a beautiful new life. My younger brother Dustin had a child a few years ago, and he was very young, and his child's mother was even younger. And at first, what seemed to be painful, tragic, 
and beyond hope that he would have a child so young and be so ill-prepared, shortly thereafter yielded one of my favorite human beings, Anira Ramirez O'Shell, my niece. And she is the most spoiled ball of joy and happiness and laughs all the time and is adorable and wears her big hats and, you know, she's adorable. And God does that with our pain. He brings new life out of it and no life is accidental and the new life that will come out of your pain is far better than you could ever imagine as one of my favorite Bible verses says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor has it even entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. And that's what Paul compares it to. What used to be the curse on Eve of childbirth and pain for sin, God through his Son and adopting us has transformed into an avenue to bring new life. What was a curse is now a blessing. I'm going to invite Carrie to come back. We're only in the middle of our stories, which requires hope. All of us are trying to make sense of our lives. And we grow bitter with God, and the temptation to work things out on our own is nearly overpowering at times. We don't see the life that we hoped for. It's not the way it's supposed to be. But Paul says in verse 25, Who waits for what they see? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience, and in this hope we are saved. You'll hear me reference literature a lot in my sermons because I'm an avid reader and I love to write. My, uh, my dad, Ed, was a journalist for a number of years in Wisconsin and his love for writing and, and reading lives on in me. One of the greatest works, I think, in human history is The Count of Monte Cristo. And you can watch that movie. There's a movie that's much shorter in the books by Alexander Dumas. But the main character, Edmund, Dante's is wrongly imprisoned and the love of his life is stolen away the life that he dreamed of he's thrown into one of the worst prisons in France and begins to suffer and the book catalogs his quest for revenge and this young man loses himself in his own suffering he encounters a priest in prison and he screams at the priest and says I don't believe in your God and the priest responds well he believes in you. And as the story progresses, Edmund realizes that revenge has left him empty and that his suffering has eaten him alive. Finally, he comes to the striking conclusion at the end of the book, all human wisdom is contained in these two words, wait and hope. What satisfies Edmund in the end is not his quest for revenge, but that he's able to unite two people who love one another on the island of Monte Cristo, and he sails away. You see, maybe you don't see the life that you wanted, and maybe your suffering has soured your spirit, but you don't have to remain that way, because in this hope we are saved. Why? Because like the Count, love is what satisfies. You see, suffering is not overcome with the right answers, but the right company. Let me say that again. Suffering is not overcome with the right answers, 
but the right company. You see, you are part of God's family, and it's not what he's saying, it's who you're with. And the reason that Romans 8.28 is true, that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose, is because you are God's child. That's why it's true. And that's why we can sing what we sang this morning, saying, who can be against us? if God is for us. See, God is still weaving your life together, and you have to have the hope to see it through to the end, because you are not at the end of your story. You're still in the middle of it. And some of you have never experienced this. You don't know what I'm talking about when I talk about adoption, and that's because God's Spirit is still drawing you to become a child, a son with all the rights of God, for the very first time today. Or perhaps you've forgotten the heritage that's yours. The fiery trials, like the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, have clouded your vision of the inheritance that is unperishable, unfading, and undefiled, kept in heaven for you. And you've lost sight of it because suffering and bitterness has obscured your view. But there is better things ahead. And the Spirit Himself long way bears witness. You truly are a child of God. So I'm going to invite you to stand. And whether you want to ask Christ into your heart for the very first time, or whether you need to be reminded of whose you are, I want you to make that covenant with God again right here and right now that you will be seen and known by God, protected by God, that His Spirit would be with you and testify to that fact. I want you to take a minute and seek the Lord because He's with you always.